Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 287 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Recovery from Lyme, an interview with Dr. Daniel Kindler-Lehrer. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, Matt and I started our journey together, which ultimately resulted in the creation of this podcast. We read a number of books, one of which was Recovery from Lyme Disease. And we learned that this Lyme pioneer became a pioneer as a result of him getting sick himself from Lyme disease. And that became what he called the worst and best thing that ever happened in his life. And folks, you're really going to enjoy learning about why this was both the worst and the best experience in this doctor's life. And Rich, we knew this interview was going to be great for our listeners. When really smart people like Margot Gunning and Brianna Wick kept telling us we had to interview him. He's literally the doctor's doctor who wrote the book on Lyme disease. Not only does he give us specific tips on how to heal and overcome chronic Lyme disease, but he also talks about ways to overcome the neuropsychological pieces of Lyme and tick-borne illnesses. Folks, in addition to the information that is available in the book, Recovery from Lyme Disease, we also had a conversation about a number of developments that have taken place since the book was written. And I think you're going to really enjoy that part of the conversation as well. And folks, really excited to introduce to you Recovery from Lyme Disease. Hello, Dr. Daniel Kindler, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are really excited to have you here on the podcast, and I do want to share with our community that uh, those of you who understand uh, what Matt and I, uh, or, or I should say what called Matt and I to start this podcast, was, was a journey that began with reading 31 of the leading books on Lyme disease. And as it turns out, one of my favorite books is the book that was written by our guest. So I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's been a long journey for us, and you are one of the people that we were targeting for this podcast for a long time. So we really thank you for taking the time, not only to write your brilliant book, but to take the time to speak with us for our community. Thank you, glad to be here. So talk to us, uh, first of all, about where you are currently practicing and uh, what type of work you're doing now. Well, I practice in Denver, Colorado, the beautiful Southwest, not too far from the Rockies. My practice focuses on patients who have tick-borne infections, the vast majority of them are chronically ill, and that keeps me pretty busy, but I'm also involved with, with writing and research and engaging on that level. So let's bring you back to uh, your childhood. Uh, Where did you grow up? And, and I'm particularly interested in, uh, in uh, your relationship with your mom, who I know is a very special person, uh, not only for you, but for all the folks that you're treating. So give us Give us a little bit about your background and what it was like to be the child of, uh, of a famous writer. Wow, uh, I, you know, I've not been asked that question before in one of these interviews, but I'm, I love talking about my mom because she really was a very special person. She was a writer, she was an author. And uh, by the time I was finishing high school or beginning college, she started writing for Prevention Magazine and Rodale Press and she became the food editor. And she did that for about 25 years before retiring. I grew up in the 50s in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And there weren't, I shouldn't say that, there were health food stores, but very few and far between. If you wanted to buy vitamins, generally it was mail order. And if you ate healthy food, meaning whole wheat bread, you, you know, uh, or organic food, you were considered a nutcase. Just to, for people to appreciate where our society was at that point, uh, 
when the cholesterol theory came out, which would have been in the 50s, the initial response of the doctors was, well, it's crazy to think that what you eat can affect your risk of heart disease. You know, the same occurred with cancer and so on, you know, just to give people an idea of what it was like, you know, two to, two to three generations ago. So my mom, she really stuck out, you know, we didn't have iceberg lettuce, we only had dark green stuff, we didn't have soda pop. And, you know, it was all healthy food. I, I longed for Wonder Bread, you know, with peanut butter and jelly, we didn't get it. And um, she, she walked her talk and people, people thought she was a nutcase, but now everything she said has become totally mainstream. And, you know, there were other people around at that time, like Adele Davis and Beatrice Trum Hunter, both of whom were prominent authors. My mom wrote 12 or 13 books. So it was, she really instilled in me a, uh, a sense of uh, nutrition and how important that is for health and the whole concept of prevention. And, you, you know, I, I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age and I have no, um, no linear reason for that. I can, all I can say is I think it was soul driven that at a very young age, I, I, um, I, I said, I wanna be a doctor. In fact, okay, I'll tell you a little story. My uncle Louis, who was my father's uncle, uncle would sponsor a Seder, you know, over Passover, he'd sponsor a Seder for the entire family on both sides, he and his wife, 200 people at Gluckstern's on Delancey Street on the Lower East Side every year, the second Seder, right? So when I was about five years old, uh, I was the youngest, so I was nominated to do the four questions, right? And, but I went to a Jewish day school at that point, and I think any of us could have done it. But the fact that I was five years old and, and always short, so I probably looked three years old, I got up there and did it no problem. And someone came up to me at that point, and after, after I chanted the, the Manishtana and said, you know, you, you chanted that so beautifully, do you wanna be a rabbi or a cantor when you grow up? And I said, Thoughtfully, I said, no, I want to be a doctor who knows the Torah. So, oh, so let's, let's pause there for a second. I, I just want to share with you that your mother was an influential force in my life. Prevention Magazine was a big part of my childhood. I'm a little bit younger than you. I grew up in the 60s and early 70s. And, um, and during that uh, stage uh, of my life, um, you know, the Prevention Magazine was a regular part of our experience. I remember uh, my father having us uh, eating, um, eating bee pollen as a way of ex expanding our endurance when we were participating in athletic activities from an article you read in Prevention Magazine. Uh, we, uh, rather than uh, taking some of the traditional medications when we were, when we had the sniffles, we would be eating, um, be eating uh, beeswax uh, and, uh, and, and, and honeycomb. And we had a number of different natural uh, tools available to us because of Prevention Magazine. So I wanted you to know that, that your mom actually played an influential role in our lives. And, and I also want you to know that I think in large part, you wanted to be a doctor because you were given this foundation from having this really powerful force in your life, your mom. Definitely, uh, it's something, there was some, transmission there, I'm sure. Uh, I can't tell you exactly how that happened, but 
But, you know, as I went through my training, which was standard Western medicine, internal medicine, she was hitting me over the head with a prevention saying, give them vitamin C. You know, um, she did have a, a major influence. There's no question. Um, and I, I feel it was, it was quite a gift growing up with my mom. And, and, you know, as you point out, back then, Prevention Magazine was the only place you could read about general nutrition. That's it. You certainly weren't going to get it from a doctor and you weren't going to get it from a nurse. You weren't going to get it from a public health agency. They didn't give it to us in medical school. So it was an important source for a lot of people. The Rodales were way ahead of their time. You may or may not know this, but they started the organic food movement. They had an experimental farm on the outskirts of Allentown. And they published organic gardening and farming for 20 years at a loss wow. until it finally caught on. They started the whole movement. So now you, you, you said something else that intrigued me that I, I don't want to uh, leave before we move on. And it says you wanted to be a doctor that was well-versed in the Torah. So talk to us about that and what role the Torah played in um, your foundational development. Well, that was a five-year-old who said that, right? But it turned out to be a really thoughtful answer. The Torah teaches us how to be ethical people, right? And so you can be a fireman who knows the Torah. You can run podcasts who know the Torah. You know, you can be a, a president or a congressman. Wouldn't that be nice? And, and just follow an ethical life with purpose. And... I can't tell you what was going through my mind when I was five years old and came up with that. But, um, but I'd like to think that I have been able to follow through on that intention. Well, part of the reason I'm asking the question is I've actually been studying the Torah for the last two years and uh, in some conversations that Matt and I have come across, we've also seen that there are, there's a, a great deal of health advice in the Torah. And uh, for example, uh, different ways of supporting your immune system. And one of the things that we, we, had, we had specifically talked about with a past guest, and I don't, I don't know, I, it may have been in Leviticus, it may have been in Deuteronomy, but there was a, there was a section about, about um, calling a rabbi to, um, to examine your home. And we were reading this to, um, to, to think that the rabbi was called to see if there was any, um, if there was any uh, mold in your home before somebody who had leprosy would go back to their home. So when you were studying the Torah as a child or even at any time, did you see these kinds of, um, you know, sort of um, spiritually driven um, health recommendations regarding, uh, regarding how to keep your immune system healthy and how to protect yourself if you were dealing with a bacterial infection, um, for example, very much like Lyme disease? Honestly, I can't. I can tell you that, you know, because I went to a, a Jewish day school, Orthodox, so it was more or less a yeshiva. By sixth grade, we actually had read the entire five books in Hebrew, translating as we went with Rashi commentary. And, and uh, you know, and I think that's an amazing background to have, but I cannot say that there was anything I learned there that I put in the perspective of here's how I can maintain my health. 
So let's 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 go fast forward to uh, your time um, in college and medical school. Talk us where you went to college and what you studied and uh, why you chose to go to the medical school that you went to. Well, pretty simple. I went to a college that my girlfriend's brother went to, Franklin Marshall College in Lancaster, PA, because he had a great experience there. They had a very strong pre-med program. So I spent four years there as a math and then a biology major. I have a brother who's a mathematician at Carnegie Mellon, who helped me by the way. And then, and then I went to Tufts Medical. I went to Tufts Medical because we wanted to be in Boston. Um, <clears throat> my first wife and I got married after I graduated from college and we moved to Boston. That's why I ended up there. So you started to hint to us that when you were in medical school, um, you were not, uh, necessarily um, taught anything about Lyme disease. So talk to us about what you knew, if anything, about Lyme disease by the time you had graduated from medical school. I can easily answer that. The answer is zero. I graduated medical school in, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1975. And I think the first paper that came out in the um, American literature, or I should say the paper that drew attention was I think around 77 that centered on Lyme, Connecticut. There was an earlier paper uh, by a Scrementi, a dermatologist in Wisconsin. That was the first case reported in the United States, but it didn't draw much attention. You know, and when it was reported in Lyme, Connecticut, there was a whole series of children who had previously been diagnosed as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, JRA. And then the mothers finally were able to get the CDC interested and they came in and said, whoa, well, it seems to me this is uh, a, related to a tick bite that this rash that these kids describe is all connected to that. Well, it turns out it's all in the European literature already. <laughs> and in fact, Scrementi noted that he diagnosed what was already in the, in the European literature and he treated it with penicillin because they had already determined that this is a a bacterial infection in response to, to antibiotics. So talk to us about your, your, first, um, your first medical office or your first medical practice. And uh, I understand you opened up your first practice in 1979 and had an interesting name, the Nutrition and Preventative Medicine Practice. Talk to us about what motivated uh, the, the young doctor to open up a practice uh, where you did with the name of the practice that you, that you utilized. Yeah, that's an interesting story. So I, uh, I did an, a residency in internal medicine and that included even a chief residency. So it was really in depth in terms of taking care of sicker and sicker people. As a chief resident, I was asked to consult on the sickest people in the hospital. I had amazing stores of medical knowledge up to date in my brain but most of the people that I was consulting on had very poor prognoses. Many of them never left the hospital. And it seemed ironic to me that here I was in some ways at the peak of my profession, you know, I gleaned the most of, from all the subspecialists. People were coming to me for answers. And yet my time, attention and energy was going to treating people who most of whom died within the next 12 months. So I said to myself, you know, instead of spending my time in an ICU and CCU dealing with these severely ill people, 
if I could, if I could help 12 people stop smoking, I will probably have more impact on the health of the general population than what I'm doing here in these chronic care or acute care units. And, and like I mentioned before, my mom's hitting me over the head with the given, you know, given vitamin C business. So I was very aware that, you know, what can we, what can we do about helping people stay healthy? And that's when, and that's why I opened up that practice. I actually was working emergency room because I actually, I'd like taking care of emergencies, acute care, the triage, the fast in and out. But on the side, I opened up this practice that then drew more and more people. I thought that I would be treating people who had some problems that we could maybe get them off of the Western model and work with diet and lifestyle like high blood pressure and overweight, or if they had you know, colds and recurrent sinus infections, you know, could we do stuff with eucalyptus and vitamin C, that kind of thing. I also thought I'd be seeing people who are generally healthy and wanted to know what they could do to stay healthy. What happened is I was seeing people who had fallen through the cracks. I saw people who had chronic medical complaints. They had been to not only several doctors, but major hospitals in Boston. They had large charts that I would go through in terms of testing. And I became a doctor of last resort. At that point, this was in the 80s, and there were a handful of us in the United States who were practicing what was then called holistic medicine. There were a couple people like Jonathan Wright and Alan Gaby who were writing articles and then books on how to treat people from uh, that, that nutritional holistic perspective. Uh, Jeff Bland is a nutritional biochemist who is also active. But then in the Northeast, because I was practicing outside of Boston, um, there, was, there was a group of us that included some really well-known people like Sid Baker and Leo Gallen, and we get together four times a year. And we were it. I mean, we, we would discuss cases and just chew on what was going on. It turned out that when it was Jonathan Wright who wrote in one of his articles, and as you would recall, he had a, a regular column in Prevention Magazine, and they published his first one or two books. So he said, if, if a patient has three or more unusual complaints that don't make sense, they probably have food allergies. And that's when I became conversant with food sensitivities, which no surprise, I learned nothing about in medical school and training. And I started putting people on elimination diets. And lo and behold, people with, with chronic bowel problems, people with chronic migraines, people with chronic fatigue, and all of these other symptoms were, were being cured. I mean, so basically, I ended up doing a lot of environmental medicine. Eventually, uh, we, we had a whole allergy clinic in as part of my practice. So I would say what I ended up doing to a large degree was medical detective work. And, and you, were doing, you were doing this medical detective work without any formal training. It was the, the, the 
child who grew up in the household that you grew up in with the mom who was an editor at Prevention Magazine and the author of books on nutrition and preventative care that opens up a practice that is outside of the scope of his Western training that then becomes the doctor of last resort. That's pretty much it. I mean, the good news was, you know, I could call up any of these doctors who, some of whom are quite famous at this point, and ask questions, you know, like, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And, you know, now, as you're well aware, there's tons of books on, on the whole field. But back then, there weren't very many. So I could read them and reread them, learn what I could. And, um, but, but it really was an integrative medical practice. We didn't have that word. It was started off holistic, then it became alternative medicine, then complementary and alternative medicine, and then functional and then integrative, you know, whatever it is. It, that, it was the same thing back then, and now it's developed more. But, but, that, but we were doing, we, that's what we were doing. And I think patients really appreciated that I could give them the Western medicine perspective. They weren't losing anything by coming to see me. It was all enfolded in what I did. I could still evaluate and work them up from that perspective. But, well, here's an amusing anecdote. I, I referred a patient to a gastroenterologist and the patient called me up. He complained. He said, hey, this guy's ordering tests that you already did. What, you know, what's going on? So I called up the doctor and whatever, whatever went on in the conversation. I remember he said to me, he said, Dan, I think, I think we actually work in parallel universes. My thought was, no, actually, your universe is in a little corner of my universe. You know, we're just looking at things from such a much larger perspective. So that's, that's what I did. So do you, do you think your patients were coming to you despite you using this alternative uh, approach because you were safe? meaning you had a medical degree. So those of us who are conditioned to believe that the only way that we could get better is by being treated by a doctor with a medical degree, but you would sort of step into the larger universe to use your term. So you were safe. You had the, you know, the traditional credentials that we were conditioned to believe that we had to go um, to someone who had, but, uh, but you, would, you would step outside of that sort of Western box. Yeah, I'd say we expanded the box. We didn't walk away from Western medicine and say drugs are bad for you. We just said, you know, let's look at a bigger picture. You know, I just want to remind you, this wasn't long after the, the mainstream doctors were saying what you eat couldn't possibly have anything to do with your health and well-being. Right? Absolutely. So it, it, it still included you know, an appropriate workup for infections and inflammation and whatever other issues that really do fall under, under what's more mainstream Western medicine, but it, but it looked at things from a much bigger perspective. So I'd like you to share with us um, how your practice influenced your life and the way you were living your life, meaning what types of changes did you make based on the observations you made of, of your patients and how are you caring for yourself and, and behaving yourself so that you could prevent yourself from getting sick? That's an interesting question. I, 
I don't know what changes I made on because of particular information I gleaned or interaction with my patients. But okay. I was always interested in how to sustain health. So I tried to eat a diet. I did eat a diet that was always healthy. And I never developed a taste for sugar, which is kind of unusual, right? And well, you know, if, you, if you, your mom didn't let you have it, so it's hard to develop a taste for it when you never had it. Yeah, I mean, if I take a bite of uh, most cookies, cakes, or even ice cream, it, it, to me, it's just disgustingly sweet, you know? Um, in fact, one of the things my mom did was, you know, if she baked from a recipe, she would cut the sugar in like maybe a, maybe a quarter uh maybe or but often less than that at any rate you know i exercised and i tried to take good care of myself the way people appreciate now just because i very became very aware that our health is precious and we needed to do some work to maintain it so when did you suspect that your patients who were coming to you as a doctor of last resort may have been suffering from lyme disease or uh, or tick diseases well, I saw an occasional case of acute Lyme disease where I lived. Ipswich, Massachusetts, which was very close to where I lived, was one of the epicenters for Lyme disease, just like Lyme, Connecticut. There is uh, one street, I think it was Limebrook Road, uh, where it seemed like almost everybody who lived on that road had Lyme disease. Lyme disease was not as bad then as it is now. Uh, but they would, they would get a bullseye rash, erythema migrans, and a shot of penicillin or, you know, a course of doxy or zithromax and stuff would treat it. We, didn't, we weren't seeing co-infections like we're seeing now. So I saw an occasional case I diagnosed as acute Lyme, but what I can say without any data backup is that it's much more likely than not that many of the patients I was seeing who fit the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia back then, before I became Lyme literate, really had Lyme disease. It wasn't until I myself had Lyme disease and had a major part of my recovery that I became really more tuned in to what was happening in such a large segment of the population. And that's when I said, you know, there's hardly any doctors out there who know what they're doing. The Infectious Disease Society, forget it. CDC, forget it. And I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna devote all my time and energy to just treating these people because they have very few places to go. So let's pause there. So now we're in 1996, right? You're, uh, you, you've been in practice for a fair amount of time. You are you. You have this. Um, what is now what we would call an integrative practice. You're you're you have this strong background coming from your childhood, where you are you are living healthily. You're seeing you're seeing uh, these healthy lifestyle changes have a positive impact on your patients. So you're getting more and more support for the strong foundation that you developed from your mom or from your family in general. Um, yet you get sick in 1996. Uh, so talk to us about what happened in 1996 and what your thoughts are on why your lifestyle um, uh, tools did not protect you from Lyme disease. Right, so I mentioned that Ipswich, Massachusetts 
was one of the epicenters for Lyme. I lived in Boxford, which was maybe 10 miles as the crow flies. And in the middle of August, 1996, I suddenly developed a high fever. It was over 104 degrees, shaking chills, drenching sweats, severe aching all over. And it lasted a few days and then I was better. And I was willing to write that off because I, at that time, interestingly, I perceived myself as healthy. And I thought, well, I guess that was a virus in the middle of summer, it's not likely the flu, but whatever, after three days, I was okay. And the next day, next week, I'm doing my usual thing. I go for some runs, no problem. But a week later, it happened again for a couple of days. And I was still in denial, basically. I, I, since it only lasted a couple of days, I said, oh, okay, so the virus wasn't quite gone. But a week after that, it happened for the third time. And at that point, I said, okay, I, I can't be in denial anymore. And I saw a physician friend of mine. And he examined me. He said, oh, your spleen is enlarged. And we did some blood tests. And he ordered a Lyme test. Now, I did not see a tick attachment. I did not see a rash. And that's true for most of my patients. And it came back positive. So I was delighted. Oh, I have this simple bacterial infection. I'm going to take some antibiotics and it'll be gone. And I'll get back to feeling healthy. Well, I wasn't feeling healthy at that point. My symptoms had morphed so that instead of having these fevers and chills and sweats, I had incredible sleep problems and tremendous anxiety. Now, I was not an anxious person before that. I was, you know, relatively cool, calm, collected. You know, I was the emergency room doc who just, you know, stayed cool. And, and suddenly I have, I feel like impending doom 24 seven. And I can't sleep. I'm taking a hundred milligrams of Benadryl a night. I mean, it, it was, I, I, I can't tell you how awful this experience was. And uh, so those were my main symptoms at that point. And, uh, and I go on antibiotics and they don't do anything. It's interesting when, when, uh, when they didn't do anything, I did another test about a month later, the test came back even more positive than the first test, a slam dunk CDC positive test, right? At that point, I call up Dr. Alan Steer, whom you've probably heard of. Now, he actually, at that point, was at my alma mater. He was at Tufts New England Medical Center. He was, he was Yale Rheumatology when, when Yale Rheumatology, along with the CDC, went to Lyme, Connecticut and said, you know, what's all these kids doing with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis? So he was a principal author on, on that investigation. He was considered a world expert. So back then, doctors could call doctors and we actually got responses. It's not so easy now. So I put in a call, he called me back within an hour and so what can I do for you? He was very courteous. I, I gave him a, a brief presentation of my illness and the lab data and his response was, well, you don't have Lyme disease. 
And I was shocked. And I said, well, what about the tests? The tests were a slam dunk. They're pretty specific, aren't they? He said, false positive, lab was wrong. And I said, well, why don't I have Lyme disease? And he said, because if you did, you'd be better by now. Meaning you took the antibiotics, they always work. And since they didn't work for you, you don't have Lyme disease. And I said, well, what do you think I have? He said, something else. That was the whole conversation. I, you know, my mind was blown. When I got off the phone, I called a colleague of mine who was in upstate New York, who I knew was treating Lyme and chronic Lyme problems. And I said, hey, Kenny, here's, here's what happened. Let me tell you about this discussion I just had. And he said, Dan, welcome to the Lyme Wars. And that, that was my intro. So here's the interesting thing that Dr. Steer was categorically wrong. I had Lyme disease. There's no question. Anyone who looked at my record would say, there's no question you had Lyme disease. He was correct. I also had something else. Now, if I was taking my history now, and I said, you know, this started off with a high fever, shaking chills and drenching sweats. Say, there's no question you had acute babesiosis. Duh, right? Um, but back then, babesiosis was pretty much under the radar. Not too many doctors were tuned into it, and certainly not steer. So, um, so that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my journey. That's what happened in '96. So, doctor, just to recap, if you can give us how long were you sick before you got tested and diagnosed? Can you just re uh, replay that for us again? I, from the onset of symptoms till the first blood test, was Correct. three to four weeks. Okay, so you were sick for about four weeks. And within about four weeks, you were so sick that you were feeling like you had this impending doom 24 seven, as you said, correct? That's correct. Why do you think the symptom onset came on so rapidly? Meaning, you know, generally in other people we speak to on this podcast, we hear people I say they, it takes them years to develop to that point. And other people, it can take a week, two weeks, three weeks, et cetera. Why do you think in your case, it was so quick? Because you were healthy, right? You were eating well, you were exercising, you were a healthy guy. Why do you think it developed so quickly in you? You know, there's such disparate presentations to this illness. So there's differences in the bugs and there's differences in the, in the hosts, the people. And so we see so many variations on a theme I would say most of the people I see in my practice were not aware of having had an acute illness. But many people are. Many people either get a rash and or they have the flu syndrome, but many people don't. And depending on which co-infection you have, it might present like I did with Babesia. I mean, that was a now you I can look at it and say that's a slam dunk. There's no question I had babesiosis. But you know, I don't have I don't have a uh, definitive answer for you. People are different. The bugs are different. Even just the lime. The lime has so many different strains, over a thousand easily, and some are are quite invasive, and others are kind of benign. If you don't do anything, they don't go much past the skin. You know, a, a good friend of mine, Pam Weintraub, that you maybe you interviewed her. She wrote an excellent book and. Uh, about 10 years ago that I still think is fantastic, Cure Unknown. And, um, and she talks about that in the book, about this variation among 
the, the bugs themselves. And then when you have two bugs instead of one bug, that changes the immune responses. You know, it, it just gets more and more complicated. But then there's me and the fact that I have a certain genetic profile, it turns out it sucks, quite frankly. You know, you know, terrible detoxification, methylation, and even neurotransmitter metabolism. You know, it, I was born with it and probably none of that would have caused a problem until my system got strained and stretched by these infections, you know, and that's what we see with mold too, you know, not a problem on, you know, until something else happens. Well, let's explore that a little bit deeper because you gave us two really solid answers there. The first is it's the variety in the bugs. And the second is it's the individual, right? And when we talk about the variety in the bugs, even specific to Lyme disease, you mentioned that there's over a thousand different strains of Lyme disease. And we've heard from various sources that different strains can impact people differently. And you made it, just made a statement that some strains of Lyme won't even break through the skin, it sounded like. So we've heard that some strains will actually make you almost all the time neurologically impaired. Other strains will only cause rheumatological symptoms. So is that something you agree with where depending on what strain of Lyme disease you're infected with, it can impact you drastically different than somebody else with a different strain? A qualified yes. The qualification is and it depends on the host as well. So yes, the bugs are different and the host responses are different. But so let's talk about that host response, right? Because I do know we've, we've done a lot of research on you personally, and also we've read your book. And we know you talk a lot about epigenetics and your DNA and the role that microbes and, and our diet, et cetera, play on activating our genetics in, in our bodies, right? So you mentioned you have bad genetics. So what does that mean? Can you give us a little more detail about why your genes played a role in you getting as sick as you did so quickly? Well, one thing is I, I have a, a pretty poor methylation profile. I have a homozygous mutation in the MTHFR gene, and that affects detoxification, but it also affects uh, gene control, you know, uh, the, the generation of S methionine, which most people know as SAMI, which is very important for neurotransmitters. It's very important also in terms of regulation of our genetics and epigenetics. And this, I could, it's interesting, I'm just going to go a little bit tangential. In most of the kids I see with PANS, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome, most of those kids have a similar methylation problem where they have two mutations on the MTHFR gene, but they are low in homocysteine because they have an upgraded CBS. This is a, that's a gene that leads to increased transsulfuration. This is gonna make any sense at all to people who are not already conversant in it. I do go into detail in my book, but, the, but it basically leads to a somewhat catastrophic detox profile. And these kids have so much inflammation in their bodies. And, and when the inflammation is in their brains, oh my God, you know, huge mental health issues. So I was having huge mental health issues. And, and it's an area I have particular interest in. You know, people like yourself, you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we started the podcast that, you know, you had neuroline. Almost all my patients have neuroline. It's few that it only have problems in their musculoskeletal system or in their skin or something like that. Almost all of them have neurological symptoms. If they're lucky, those neurological symptoms are not central, meaning not in the brain and 
midbrain and spinal cord, but peripheral, in which case it's bad enough. You can have severe pain, pins, needles, numbness, uh, even weakness, paresis. If it's in the brain, you know, that those are your worst symptoms. You know, you can't think, you get headaches, severe fatigue. But the worst, I think, is are the severe mental disorders, the severe anxiety, the severe depression, severe irritability, anger, rage issues, and bipolar and psychosis. I mean, there's a whole long list. And part a lot of what I've been doing in the past year or two is trying to educate mental health workers on here's when you should suspect an organic disorder when someone presents to you with a mental health complaint. You know, we call them microbes and mental illness. And I just think it's a huge, huge problem. We can talk about that more, but I know I'm going tangentially now, so I'll let you ask the questions. No, I mean, this is something that we know we've, we've read a lot about your discussions on microbes, mental illness. And one of the questions we, I want to follow up with on this is what actually causes the neuropsychological symptoms with Lyme disease, right? Is it inflammation from bugs in the brain, meaning that we actually have Lyme and Borrelia in our brain? Is it, is it you know, what's, what's the root cause or what's the driving factor when you have Lyme disease that triggers these neuropsychological symptoms in Lyme patients? You know, that's a great question. Early on, we used to refer to it as bugs in the brain. At this point, it's not really clear that we're talking about some sort of, uh, of microbial invasion of our hemispheres, but rather talking about inflammation. When we're talking about chronic Lyme, and as you and I talked earlier, I refer to it as Lyme disease complex because we're talking about Lyme, we're talking about co-infections, we're talking about chronic inflammation, we're talking about dysregulation in the immune endocrine nervous system and so on, what happens when these infections are not well controlled. The bottom line is we end up seeing a lot of autoimmunity, that these bugs trigger our immune system to become very highly reactive, and then our immune system is triggering our own structures, and when it triggers our brain, it can result in all these neuropsychiatric symptoms as well as the other nervous system symptoms that I mentioned previously. I'm just going to jump in there to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt, doctor, but I just want to clarify. So when the bugs are invoking an immune response, which causes autoimmunity, and we're very, you know, we talk about that a lot in this podcast, the autoimmune alarm connection. Are you saying that our, our immune system response is actually getting through the blood-brain barrier and causing inflammation in our brain? Is that what you mean by that? That is what I mean by that. So for the um, I just want to explain to the audience here what happens with rheumatic fever because it's something that somehow easily translates. Rheumatic fever is when you get a strep infection, antibodies to the strep attack the heart valves because there's a structural similarity between the strep bacteria and the heart valves. So in a sense, our immune system gets confused. Hey, these look, these look like the invader and, and our immune system attacks the heart valve. So rheumatic fever is an autoimmune problem, but it's also an infection and we treat the infection. We're talking about the same thing with, with autoimmune encephalitis, which is the PANS and PANDAS syndromes, but, but we're talking about Lyme and tick-borne infections in general once they're in their chronic stage. So antibodies to these bugs then attack our structures. And yes, these antibodies basically penetrate the blood-brain barrier 
and they cause neuroinflammation. Now there are other issues that occur in the brain that have to do with blood flow uh, and, and probably that's related to inflammation in the blood vessels, vasculitis. And spec scans, which actually look at how well the perfusion of blood is in the brains, often see these spotty perfusions or sometimes global hypoperfusion. We're just not getting you know, appropriate blood flow to the brain. We see neurotransmitter dysregulation with these people. So, you know, again, we have what I would what I would classify as autoimmune inflammation in the brain generating all sorts of terrible neuropsych symptoms and other neurological symptoms. So it really all comes down to the inflammation, that the inflammation being generated by the immune response is causing the antibodies from our immune system to go in and cause inflammation in the brain. We're constricting our blood vessels and therefore we're not getting enough blood flow, blood flow causing other neurological symptoms. And it all comes back to this inflammation, restricted blood flow and an immune response. Basically, I think it's what you're saying there. But you know, you mentioned a couple of times the software versus the hardware. You, you know, you throw, I know you use those words a lot. And I know you said that it's generally the software, not the hardware when it comes to Lyme disease. And as an IT professional, I found that really interesting. So can you just expand upon what you mean by that doctor and give us some clarity on that, that phrase? Yeah, thanks for asking. So let's go back to the rheumatic fever example. When, when a person has a strep throat, the strep is invading the cells in our tonsils or pharynx and they're actually disrupting the, the cellular function there and killing some of the cells in our body. And then an appropriate immune response will send white cells, the, the antibodies will attract other immune cells, they'll kill and swallow the bacteria and send them away, and then there'll be repair of the tissue. That's a hardware problem. But if in the, instead the bugs don't invade the cells and sort of destroy their function, but instead generate an immune response. And then we have antibody mediated inflammation, which can then target maybe our knees or our hips or the gut in some cases, different parts of the body, including the brain and the nerves. That's a software problem because of the immune system, the nervous system, the endocrine system. I classify those as software, not hardware. They're dysregulated. And we see that. And I just want to point out the immune system, nervous system, endocrine system, they're not separate systems at all. They, they you know, we, we really are one universe, right? And, and those systems have a lot to do with, you know, I, I would actually even say those systems have a lot to do with our mind you know, in terms of uh, defining who we are. This is the communication network within our body. And, uh, and it gets disrupted. You know, our whole sense of who we are gets disrupted. So this is really like a computer programming problem where it's the signals that our body is sending because of the bacteria, meaning the immune response, as you referred to, when the immune is attacking the brain and causing inflammation or the immune system is causing inflammation in our blood vessels, or now our immune system or the response to the bacteria and the pathogens are causing a dysregulation of our nervous system. That's what you mean by the software component to Lyme disease, correct? That is correct. So talk to us about the, the nervous system, because we do know 
so many people that are dealing with chronic Lyme disease are in this, you know, as you called, I felt like I was in an impending doom 24 seven. And I interpret that as you were in fight or flight, you were, you know, you were, you were stuck in this fight or flight, sympathetic system, uh, nervous system activation. And I think that's a consequence of the bacteria as well. Correct. So our, the Lyme bacteria can put us into fight or flight. And then how do we, how do we address that? Because when you're in that state, it's really hard to recognize you're there and to take steps to get yourself in a calm or rest and digest state of nervous system again. You know, this is such an interesting question, Matt, because about a month or more ago, I gave a lecture on, um, is basically on Lyme and PTSD. The pathophysiologies are parallel. And in fact, I'm I just started working on a paper for a medical journal that gets into details on this. And my colleague, Robert Bransfield, whom you probably know about, he's a psychiatrist in New Jersey. He's written more and done more to educate docs and lay people on neuropsychiatric Lyme. So, so you know, this is, this is a huge problem. I mean, what do you do about this? And we can look at it on different levels. If my brain is so out of control that I can barely function, I'm going to need medication, really, to calm myself. I'm going to need medication to sleep because my brain is so wired, you know, I can't sleep. And, uh, but if I was not that bad and I could maybe just take some supplements like theanine and GABA, things that could help quiet my immune system and obviously other things that can help my body deal with the infection. Then I could go to a stage of, of okay, so I'm gonna work on my emotional health. And there's a handful, uh, uh, quite a few interventions we can do. From, from relaxation meditation responses to polyvagal exercises to EMDR to all sorts of interventions that may be appropriate to help calm our nervous system and deal with it. You know, ultimately, it's also great if we can get there to a point where we can, in a, in a way, redefine who we are because this, these traumas really destroy our sense of self. It was, you know, profoundly upsetting <laughs> to suddenly not be the person I thought I was when I was so whacked out and barely functioning. Yeah, so, you, you know, we, we know that you studied this, and I'm probably going to mispronounce and I apologize in advance, this Kabbalistic healing, the Sufi healing, and, you know, the body-centered, you know, psychotherapy, uh, you know, healing as well. And the root of all this is the impact trauma has on us, and we have to address that, right? I know that's something you've studied, but, you know, if you can talk more about these types of healing modalities and the role trauma plays in recovering from an illness like Lyme disease, but, you know, as, as a follow-up to that, how do you tease out the medical trauma that's induced by the PTSD versus the bacteria, you know, triggering this, this medical, you know, this the triggering the, the inflammation, all that kind of stuff, right? So how do you, how do you identify what's causing what? And, you know, how do we address trauma when it comes to chronic Lyme disease? Wow, that's a profound question. And uh, I will do my best to answer it. I'll just mention that I became interested in those modalities before, most of them were before that I had Lyme disease. As you know, I, I had an integrative medical practice and I was helping people 
But often the way I was able to help people was having them on limited diets with a whole lot of supplements that help their digestion. I had them and they were taking immunotherapy to, to deal with their sensitivities and they had to avoid chemicals if they had multiple chemicals. In other words, they were feeling much better, but they really had to work at it. And so I had this issue. I said, well, if they were healing, then they wouldn't have to be doing all these things. And, and how do we get to, to that level of healing? It is not something medicine ever asked. And that's why I looked to something outside of the realm of medicine. And I went to a hands-on healing school for four years. Uh, and, and then I uh, studied Kabbalistic healing for a few years. And what we're looking at is you know, things on not just the energetic, but really on the soul level to try to understand who we are and how we manifest. And then a couple other trainings that you mentioned. It really has, it really helped me a lot. And even as I say that, the, it, was, um, it was of limited value in my self-healing. Now that said, I can tell you that I underwent a body-centered psychotherapy healing. It was the first one I had and there was a dramatic shift and that got me interested in studying that particular paradigm. It's an interesting story if you really want to hear it. But, um, but I, what I realized is that we are very complex beings, that we exist on so many different levels. It's like looking at something through a kaleidoscope and depending on where you focus as you change the lenses, you're going to be able to see different things and that different modalities can help any given individual at different times. So it, it gets super complicated. But what happened to me is I realized I, at one point I moved to Santa Fe from Massachusetts. I really wanted to get out of the Northeast. And there were so many healers in Santa Fe that I said, you know, I'm not going to do that type of healing. There are so many other people they can go to, but there's no one treating Lyme. And I really put it aside, I, I, not doing that. And it, it's a shame because I think it's important to try to integrate these different modalities. And I do talk about them a bit in that lecture I just mentioned to you. And if you want, I'll send you a link to that lecture you can put on your website. Um, and like I said, I'm actually writing a paper now because when we're talking about trauma, coming back to your basic question, with PTSD trauma, we're talking about an external threat. With Lyme trauma, we're talking about an internal threat. We're in being invaded by some bugs, okay? But the point is they actually end up causing the same pathophysiological abnormalities in terms of dysregulation of our nervous immune and endocrine systems. And I also want to point out that, that Lyme can not only cause PTSD in a direct metabolic way, but the experience of having Lyme, like chronic pain that's not controlled, chronic sleep deprivation that you can make your necks, uh, make you nuts, 
or you know, seeing a handful of doctors who don't believe you, and in fact, in in fact, talk contemptuously, it, it, it disregarded. Um, these are all serious traumas. You know, I could go on and on how the experience of having Lyme is it's aside from the bugs, just the experience of it, it can cause PTSD. So, so now you have PTSD on top of PTSD. And then what about people with pre-existing PTSD because they grew up in this awful, awful environment or, you know, before, before, you know, they had, they had Lyme, they had some God awful experience, like they were raped. Oh my God. Or terrible, terrible car accident, you know? And so, or they were Vietnam war vet, you know, not to mention Iraqi or Afghanistan vet. And then they get Lyme. I mean, their system is going to be so dysregulated. And how do you tear those apart? You got, you got to treat all of the above is what happens when you refer to the Kabbalistic healing. It's it, the Kabbalah describes the four worlds and the four worlds are also described in other spiritual traditions. They're described in the Sufi tradition. They're described in the shamanistic traditions. But, but so there's different language for it. But it, but they're actually the same thing. So we're talking about the world of action, doing, and physicality. We got to address what's going on in the body on a physical level. And then there's a world of emotions and energy. That if there's trauma there, we have to access that trauma and help it move. And that needs to be done in a very delicate way with people who've had serious trauma. I'll just make a shout out to Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, as an amazing, amazing book. Um, and then there's the world of, uh, in, in the Kabbalah, it's referred to as divine mind, but it's, it, but it's not thoughts, it's belief systems. Who do we think we are? Do I feel like I'm safe? And PTSD people, they do not feel safe. Um, and am I loved? Am I worthy? What's the world like? Is the world hostile? Is it caring? You know, is it safe out there? You know, this, this is the world of belief systems. Imagine, if you will, feeling so safe and secure in yourself that how that would impact your nervous and immune systems. So, so one other quick anecdote that I, I told in that lecture, I've always been intrigued by a town in Pennsylvania it was north of where I lived in Allentown, off the Delaware River, Rosetta, Pennsylvania. What happened in Rosetta, Pennsylvania was that around 1960, some investigators became interested because the rate of heart disease there was half the national average. Heart disease then and now is still the major cause of mortality. And they went in and investigating, thinking, well, what are we going to find? A whole lot of vegetarian marathon runners. But no, they found a bunch of relatively sedentary Italians eating lots of pizza and sausage. And they said, what, what the heck's going on? Well, it turned out that in Rosetta, Italy, when the quarries closed down, people had to look elsewhere for jobs and started coming to the United States. And a bunch of families came together they landed in Rosetta, Pennsylvania, and then more families came, and then they brought their priest over, and they had this incredibly tight community, and they went to the same church, and they ate together, and they had, you know, it's like everyone had multiple parents because they were so close, and they were so connected, 
And there's a book on this. It, it's it's really quite amazing. And for the most part, they were dying of old age. They didn't not only didn't have much heart disease, but they didn't have ulcers and they didn't have gallbladder disease and they didn't have dementia. You know, it's really it was pretty amazing story. Those same investigators said in 20 years, they're going to have the same rate of cardiac illness as the rest of the nation. And the reason they said that is they saw what was happening with the younger generation. They didn't want to go to church anymore. They didn't want to hang out with their family anymore. They wanted to watch TV. They wanted to get out and maybe leave Rosetta. So I had this personal experience, which is, you know, reading about this over and over because it was so intriguing to me. I imagined myself in Rosetta, Pennsylvania. So what was that like? What was that like? And I just had this like vision. You know, I'm sitting on the porch of a brick row house, which is actually how I grew up. And and um, not like Allentown was pretty flat, but here, you know, it tended to be hilly and I was looking out over this town. And what I experienced was this amazing sense of belonging, like I'm connected to all these people and acceptance. There was this unconditionality of, you know, I'm just an average bloke. I mean, there is nothing special about me but I'm part of this group. They totally take me in. And there was this, there was this relaxation in my body that all I could say was, it felt so safe. I just had this, I, I don't know if I've ever had such a profound sense of safety. I'm just held. You know, like, you know, someone else would say, you know, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus, except I'm Jewish, right? So I'm with Moses on Mount Sinai. You know, it, it just, oh my God. And when you think about that sense of safety, how that relates biologically to our nervous and immune systems, which no longer need to be hyper-reactive because there are threats out there. You know, one of the hallmarks of PTSD is hypervigilance, you know? I got to watch out, you know, what, what, what might happen next? No hypervigilance, just, just amazing sense of okayness. And, you know, that's, you know, that's what I aspire to feeling all the time. So, so let's go back to the software versus hardware discussion that you and Matt were having a moment ago, because one of the psychologists that I study argue that our mind is really survival software. Right. And, and it was it was designed to keep us safe in a hostile environment. And of course, we're not living in a hostile environment anymore. And as a result, in many cases, what's happening is our software doesn't know the difference between a lion that's going to attack us or some social threat that we have or a bug that's invading us. It's just survival software that gets triggered. Right. And and the, the example that you were given before about the 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 safe community in Pennsylvania is not only were you accepted, but you were safe, right? You didn't have to have your survival software ever triggered. And because your survival software wasn't, wasn't, wasn't ever triggered, your body was always in a, in a state of rest and digest. And as a result of that, your immune system was always at peak efficiency and you, were, you weren't getting sick, right? When you, when you go into fight or flight, when your survival software is triggered, however it is, whether it be because of social conditions or because of... Um, because of actual physical threats or because of some because of some bug or because of medical trauma what happens is your your immune system is now now not in a in in, in an optimal state and any threat any physiological threat 
you are more vulnerable to getting ill because because you're 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 in um, fight or flight. Okay, my response to that is not necessarily. And I'll give you another story. I think it's a great story. This happened in Fort Collins, Colorado, around three plus years ago. It hit the national news. There's this dude, he's in his 30s and he's jogging on the outskirts of Fort Collins. He hears some clip-clop behind him and suddenly he's attacked by a mountain lion, okay? So I, I listened to an interview, he's on national TV. I listened to an interview with this guy and you can Google this and look it up. And he said, well, you know, first I had to get its claws off my face and there are pictures of him in the hospital and you can see all the lacerations on his face. But I remembered when I was a kid, we had cats. And if the cats were on their back, they were sort of helpless. They, they couldn't get their balance. And so, you know, I was able to get this monster cat on his back and I strangled him to death. I mean, are you kidding me? And now, here's the point. You know, we can get stressed and in this case, an external threat or an internal threat by a bug and we can adapt. Our immune system might be better if we, you know, this is the whole story about kids growing up on farms are healthier, right? They're exposed to more bugs, their immune system adapts, and now they're better able to deal with the onslaught of whatever infection. Maybe it's true. I mean, we don't really know if that's true, but that's the theory out there. But look at this guy. What did he do? I'm sure he went into a flight or fight response. That's what happens when you're attacked. And he adapted. So I can tell you two things about this guy. He will not have PTSD. He's, he adapted and he'll be good. The other thing I can tell you is he had a pretty decent childhood in terms of, oh, I can do this. He was empowered. You know, he didn't just freak out and say, I'm going to die, which I think a lot of us would. You know, it, it, I mean, just imagine your brain saying, oh, well, I, I just have to get this dude on his back. I mean, really? Uh, it's amazing. So the point is, uh, yes, I think it's, it's important to have that sense of safety and security because that also means we're resourced and we can respond to threats, okay? It, it's when, you know, this is where survivors of child abuse, of survivors of child molestation, people with so-called significant ACE scores, which we can talk about, but ACE is adverse childhood experiences. They're not well-resourced. They don't have a strong sense of self in terms of feeling okay about themselves. They don't have a sense of the world as being safe. They don't know who to trust. There's all sorts of boundary issues. They're hypervigilant because they don't know what's gonna happen next. If trauma happens to them, including internal trauma like Lyme disease or external trauma like, like you know, those war victims, et cetera, they're gonna have a hell of a time dealing with it. So one of the things that Dr. Horowitz shared with us is that um, one third of his patients uh, had suffered from child sexual abuse during, uh, before, they, before they began to suffer from Lyme disease. So, and, and again, and, and I, and I I'd like to deconstruct the 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 uh, the attack that you had just described in in a separate part of the conversation, but but 
So the, so, so the question is, so are you arguing that as a result of the childhood trauma or Dr. Horowitz's observation that one third of his patients have suffered from, from sexual abuse, that they are hypervigilant and therefore they're more vulnerable to uh, getting sick from Lyme disease? Or, or are you arguing that they've been epigenetically altered and because they've been epigenetically altered, they are, they're more um, vulnerable to Lyme disease? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I would say all of the above, but I'd put the emphasis more on the former than the latter. This is interesting. So while I was still in Massachusetts, and as I related, I had a large environmental medicine practice, and I was seeing, I think, most of the most environmentally ill people in northern New England at that point. We had a, a large practice. People came from pretty far away. So these were people who you know, couldn't, if they, someone came by with perfume, they were down for the day with asthma and migraines and whatever, that they were limited to half a dozen foods and they had to take this or that vitamins and so on. You know, I had a patient who lived in a cabin, you know, in the main woods. And, you know, if anyone came within a mile of her, you know, there were going to be problems. So it was very interesting to me, and this goes back like three decades, it was very interesting to me what a high percentage of those severely environmentally ill patients had histories that Dr. Horowitz describes with severe childhood abuse. At the same time, there was Bessel van der Kolk seeing these patients. I never met Dr. van der Kolk. I, strangely, I, I knew his family. And, and he described these same patients talking about their childhood trauma. And then he mentions, and you know, they have a lot of physical problems. I don't, you know, and we were seeing the same patients. I was seeing their environmental illness and he was seeing their mental health issues. But what was so obvious to me at that point was if you grow up in an insecure environment and are traumatized and there's no safety, hypervigilance is the only normal response. Watch it, like what's gonna happen next? I gotta be careful, who do I trust? Who I, you know, no idea, right? And that hypervigilance, which we think of as a neurological phenomenon is also occurring in the immune system. So what happens with the immune system? The immune system becomes hypervigilant. They have all sorts of sensitivities, as I just described from mold and inhalants to foods and chemicals and now electromagnetic fields. And, and they also have immune suppression. They are, that is happening as well. And we see that in just plain PTSD without Lyme. We see significant inflammation and significant immune suppression in people with childhood trauma or PTSD without childhood trauma. But really, I will say this, that, that childhood trauma is like PTSD on steroids. You know, they never develop a sense of self that's safe in the world. And one of the things, one of the things that, that um, I heard uh, Bessel van der Kolk say, because I listened to a, a talk he gave, was the single biggest determinant of healing with these people is, was there at least one safe person? So just think about it, trouble things are happening at home, but they could go to grandma across the street or an aunt and uncle who, you know, could hold them and say, you know, you're okay, we love you. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. You know, you referred to the epigenetics. So what happens 
when we no longer have extended families and communities. What, you know, so we're told, we're told uh, that the statistics show that there's less uh, childhood abuse and sexual molestation now than there was a century ago. And hopefully that's true. But I actually think it's more dangerous now because we live in nuclear or single fa parent families and there aren't any safe people. Just people grow up without any safe person. And if you're trying to heal and you've never experienced safety, how do you access it? It takes a lot of work. And, you know, and, and again, I think Vanderkoek does an amazing job in his book about healing in that, in that context. So again, let's just bring this to Lyme disease now, right? So it is, it is your belief that people who are in a state of fight or flight, people who are in a consistent state of fight or flight are more vulnerable to getting sick from the disease because their immune system is suppressed. Yes, but it's, it gets more complicated. The fight or flight, you know, we think of as a nervous system response, but it involves all sorts of endocrine and immune system dysregulation. Right. There's tons of inflammation. There's, you know, corticosteroids, the cortisol level goes, goes haywire as well as the epinephrine, i.e. adrenaline response. So there's all of this dysregulation in the body. Now, is, is the, is the dysregula dysregulation, for example, on the APA axis, right? Where you're having both the cortisol and the adrenaline, isn't that just putting you into hypervigilance, physiologically putting you into hypervigilance, which is then immunosuppressive and making you more vulnerable to, uh, to the disease? Okay, when you said, um, when you say hypervigilance, I think you're also making reference to the immune system. Yes. Immune suppression. There's direct effects on the immune system. Like I mentioned before, they're not separate systems at all. You right. know, talk about neuroendocrine. In my talk, I talk about psychoneuroendocrine immunology. And, you know, you could throw your gastroenterology in there too. So, you know, it's all connected. Everything goes haywire. Okay. So, uh, before I let Matt come back, because I know he's very getting very anxious, one of the one of the questions that we sort of debate about all the time is where do you begin your healing, right? And one of the one of the issues that we've been thinking a lot about is emotional detoxing, right? Do you have to emotionally detox before you can go forward with your healing? And when somebody's coming to coming to visit with you, are you evaluating the tra traumatic environment that they've grown up in or the traumatic environment that, they, that, that, they're, that they're living in so that you can help them to get to a place where they're not suffering from the, from the dis dysregulation that comes along with having this traumatic experience and do they have to detox from that before they can go on the healing journey? It's a very interesting question. And the answer is, it's going to be different for different people. The, you know, when I was not, unable to sleep, when I was having such severe anxiety and later such severe depression, I needed drugs. I needed drugs just to stay in this world and not kill myself. And, you know, that's not emotional detox. It's not healing. It's just helping me stay on the planet. So there's that level, you know, 
distraction. Wow, you know, I, I read, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy twice, you know, it's, it's anything to take my mind off my inner experience, which was so horrible, that every day I would think I wanted to kill myself, you know, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, I maybe it was before we started the podcast, you know, the Lyme disease has been the best and the worst things that that's ever happened to me that that was the worst. I mean, I really didn't know how to make it through each day. And I spent years in that place. Because your mind was out of control, right? I mean, you couldn't control your mind and you couldn't control the voices in your head and, the, and your survival software was just constantly triggered, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, what it looked like if I was talking to a psychiatrist is he's got an agitated depression. That's the label that, that I had from that DSM viewpoint, right? DSM, of course, is, well, we can, we don't have to go there, but, you know, it's, it's not science, let's put it that way. And, and, but, you know, but there were bugs that were generating all of this neuroinflammation, like we were talking about. So at some point, you know, when people come to me, I really do my best to feel out where can we start with this person? And, you know, I think it's very important sometimes for people to say, you know, I know you feel awful. I know you're anxious and I know you're depressed. And, you know, maybe, you know, you need to see a good psychiatrist in terms of uh, psychotropic meds to just help you get through the day. But we're going to start maybe working with just what I would refer to as, as infrastructure. Let's try to regulate your adrenal glands and your thyroid and your pituitary. Let's get your diet straightened out here. Let's, that, you know, it, this could, there's all sorts of infrastructure and you've read my book. So, you know, like the whole section three, I guess, you know, is, is all, all about that. And, you know, and that has a lot to do with my internal medicine background, but also my integrative medicine background. It's all connected, you know? So, so what can I tell you? It, I, I think any good doctor uses a lot of intuition. Not all doctors are perhaps conscious of it. And some of us are more tuned into, here's what feels what's needed right now. And the first thing that's needed, I think, is simply to validate their experience. I mean, most of the people who've come to see me have been told that they're, they're malingerers, there's nothing wrong with them. Look, you have your standard blood tests are normal and uh, I don't see anything on physical exam. Really, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's so sad hearing these stories and I hear them all the time. But, but, but doctor, even if, if you have someone who is suffering from medical trauma, and I think just about everyone we've ever interviewed on this podcast has suffered medical trauma, that's different than the inflammation that may be triggering your, your, your survival software. So there are two very different processes that are triggering, yes, the same result, but they're, but they're different processes. And, and I'm wondering, what is your feeling about psychedelics? And do you think there's an important role for psychedelics in sort of the reprogramming of the uh, of the mind survival software as a predicate to healing uh, from Lyme disease. That's such a fascinating question. So, I actually have 
seen some amazing responses in some patients with anxiety and depression to microdosing psilocybin. Uh, so just for the audience, psilocybin has, there's a lot of it out there. I highly recommend uh, Michael, what's Michael's last name? Uh, who wrote the- Holland. Uh, thank you. Yeah, How to Change Your Mind. It's outstanding. He's first of all, he's an excellent writer. He teaches writing, I think at Harvard. And, but he did incredible amount of research and he describes how these psychedelics were initially being, being studied by psychiatrists and, and their role in helping people with mental illness. And then Timothy Leary went nuts with it. And then Richard Nixon saw a way to sort of squash this movement against him. And, you know, and then basically it all had to go underground. But in the early 2000s, the FDA, after having outlawed it, you know, said, well, well, we'll allow some universities to do some studies. And these studies have shown that high dose psilocybin. So we're talking about three to five grams of, of psilocybin dried mushrooms, which is different than the psilocybin extract that they're actually using in these studies. But that people go on these journeys. Now, this is really interesting. When I was a medical student in our neuroscience class, we had some, you know, maybe hippie-like neuro neurology teachers, and they showed us a video. Um, what's the name of the guy, of the dude who, he's still around, he's still a big shot, who did holographic breathing? Um, Stanislav Graf, okay? They showed a video of Stanislav Graf giving LSD to a patient with terminal cancer. And it took us through her journey. And when she finished, she wasn't scared of dying anymore. And her heart was wide open. And then those studies, you know, were closed down. But that's what they're doing again. They're doing it now in people with terminal illness. They're, they're doing it in people with addiction. They're doing that people with de depression and anxiety syndromes and seeing a lot of benefit. Now, that is not, you know, I'm going to take this LSD or take this psilocybin, I'm going to go outside and have a good time. You very controlled settings with a well-trained guide and, um, and they've had amazing results. This is published in the literature. Well, that's three to five grams usually. Microdoses are usually somewhere between 100 and 300 milligrams. We're talking about a really small part that's not hallucinogenic and all but the most sensitive individuals out there. But, but there are a, a handful of uncontrolled studies which have demonstrated that it can really help anxiety and depression and interestingly, creativity. So you, you probably know Brian Fallon, if not personally, you know who he is. So he's head of tick-borne research at Columbia University. He's psychiatrist who has studied, um, he's published, he's researched, he's done a whole lot of studies, really, really good stuff on, on Lyme and particularly neuropsychiatric Lyme. So I made a proposal to Brian and I said, Brian, there are no controlled studies microdosing psilocybin, which would be so much easier than doing a controlled study with the full dose of psilocybin where you can't do it because everyone knows who got it and who didn't, right? And so microdosing, you're just giving someone a capsule and you can give someone placebo and give some, someone microdose. And I wrote up a whole proposal to do a study on 
microdosing people with neuropsychiatric Lyme and seeing what happened to their anxiety and depression. He said, I'm willing to do it if, if you can get it funded and FDA approval. And I said, well, maybe my next research study, I'm, I'm involved with one now, but, but I have been recommending it to patients. Some patients are still so sensitive, they really can't tolerate even, the, even small microdoses. And others have really seen benefit from it. Uh, there's, there's a lot of commentary on it that people can look up. The, you know, one of the things that the, the father, and I, I, I can picture him, but I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Uh, someone who's at Stanford, a psychologist there, who did some of the original research on this stuff, but he's, he's the, considered the father of microdosing. He said, you know, antidepressants, to the extent that they work, help alleviate depression, but they don't elevate mood. It's not like, oh, now I'm really enjoying life. He said, this stuff elevates mood. He said, there's just this quantum difference in it. And we know, we know that psilocybin uh, stimulates, it, it's, um, I would call it a serotonin agonist. That, so instead of being an uptake inhibitor, which increases the levels of serotonin, if indeed that's how the SSRIs work, it actually stimulates the serotonin receptors and that particular pathway, it's this H2A receptor, it actually decreases neuroinflammation. Boom. In one of my relapses, which was sort of self-induced because I tried to change my medication regimen, I went back to my severe anxiety depression place. And when I went on uh, microdosing psilocybin, it turned around. And I think that was because it was decreasing neuroinflammation. So doctor, let's, let's go back to your Lyme journey because you did mention a relapse, right? So what did you do after you were diagnosed you were treated with antibiotics, you didn't feel better, you were told by the great Dr. Steer that it can't be Lyme disease, but you suspected differently, right? You called your friend in upstate New York and you started to realize that that probably wasn't the case. What was next in your journey with Lyme disease? That was a long journey. And, and frankly, we'd, we'd have to spend a lot more than an hour and a half to, to detail it. So I'm gonna abbreviate it somewhat. Basically, I was up and down somewhat. When I did some of the body-centered psychotherapy, it really helped. And I want to point out, because we were talking about this with Rich, that there are some programs that work on the level of the belief system that can actually, what's the word I want to use? They can decrease the amygdala's hyperreactivity. And the amygdala, as you know, you know, that's the central part of the limbic system, which is the emotional brain, which becomes hyperreactive and PTSD end in line, and then generates all this dysregulation in the autonomic nervous system, the neuroendocrine and immune systems. And, and it acted, so there are, there are protocols that you've probably heard of. One of them is DNRS, dynamic neural retraining system. Another one is the GUPTA program. Another one goes back to the full doses of psilocybin and LSD. Psilocybin is much more studied than the LSD because most LSD trips are six plus hours. Psilocybin is four hours, and this is a big deal. You have someone spending all that time with you, as well as you know, working with you before and after. 
they can actually help change your sense of who you are in a good way, you know, and that was the name of Michael Pollan's book, right? How to change your mind. It's not just changing your thoughts, it's changing your belief system and who you are. The, the people that I referenced with terminal cancer suddenly had an expanded, expanded sense of self that when they died, they would actually not leave the universe. Their consciousness remained and connected with the whole. Pretty amazing experiences. And, um, and I should mention MDMA, which I would really put in the MDMA is ecstasy. There are now several studies out of Israel, out of Britain, now out of the United States, Probably next year, the FDA is going to prove MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. There's been a very high success rate. And uh, again, this has to be done under very controlled situations. I'm not suggesting to any of the listeners that they should just go get this stuff. You know, you should, these really things need to be do under controlled situations. But the MDMA is a way of healing the trauma on the emotional level, whereas the the um, psilocybin trips journeys, as well as the, the Gupta protocols and DNRS is a way of healing our belief systems in terms of I'm safe, I'm safe. I don't have to react to this. I'm not having these flashbacks of that awful trauma that feels like it's happening now with all the nightmares, night terrors and anxiety and panic attacks that accompany it. So what did you do from a medicine standpoint? Did you do antibiotics? Did you do anything like disulfram or did you go a natural route with herbs and things like that? I did all of the above. I did antibiotics for a long time and I wasn't getting better. And that's because I was taking antibiotics for Lyme disease. I, you know, and then later I found out I had Babesia. I went on, I went on the, the usual medications for Babesia. I had a Herx where my anxiety attacks went nuts for a few weeks. Back then, Babesia was treated with three weeks of Mepron and Zithromax. Well, turns out that maybe that works for acute Babesia. It sure don't work for chronic Babesia. So I was, after I survived that, I was better for a while. Later, I was diagnosed with Bartonella. I mean, I was probably actually bitten again. I don't think I had Bartonella initially. But, you know, like I said, I lived in Massachusetts. I lived in a very rural area of Massachusetts, north of Boston. So, um, and I think, you know, I have, uh, you know, a bad, bad lottery when it comes to my genes and detoxification. And this is not unusual among uh, Ashkenazic Jews, quite frankly. It, so, you know, my body just did not deal with things well. Um, so I don't believe, I don't believe that my body will ever get rid of these things. Different, different interventions have helped for sure. Um, and I need to continue taking my stuff to keep things at bay. And you know, by the grace of God, I'm here and I can help other people. So doctor, what are you taking today? What are the things that you're taking today? Some of the, the big ones that you're taking that you can share with our listeners. What are the big things I'm taking? I'm taking, um, right now I'm taking Bactrim. This is sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, a sulfa drug, which helps keep the Bartonella at bay. I'm taking a low dose of valcyclovir, Valtrex, which is an antiherpetic medication because my Epstein-Barr titers are elevated. And I, I feel the difference from both of these. 
I take some mimosa pudica, which is an Asian anti-malarial herb. Everything we treat Babesia with is an anti-malarial. Uh, I'm taking some grapefruit seed extract, which helps, helps with my gut. It's an anti-parasitic, anti-candida, but guess what? It also has anti-Lyme activity. But, and then I take a whole lot of support nutrients in addition, phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine. I take a whole bunch of different supplements for my um, methylation cycle that includes activated B vitamins, includes uh, trimethylglycine and, and methionine and SAMe and glutathione. You know, what can I tell you? I, I'd probably take 30 pills a day. Doctor, what are your thoughts about some of these more heroic therapies, as Dr. Rose would call them, the ones like disulfiram and SOT that are more new, experimental, and higher risk? Do you th are those treatments you recommend for your patients, or do you kind of caution against those unless somebody's really sick and exhausted all their other options? Another interesting question. So disulfiram, I have a lot of experience with. You, you may be aware I've, I've written on it. I've been interviewed about it. You know, unfortunately, I have not had the same experiences as Ken Leitner has, who's the one who's published the most on this. I'm good friends with Ken. We've talked a lot about this. And, and in his second publication, when he described his high rate of success and his low rate of side effects, I talked with him and we both came to the same conclusion. I have, I have a different patient cohort than he does. And you know he's a he's a very good straight allopathic doc. I'm an integrative medicine doc. I don't think most of my patients would do well using his treatment because most of my patients they have food sensitivities, they have mold problems, methylation issues. These are not things that he deals with. You know he knows bugs really well. He knows the 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 pharmacopoeia, the antibiotics. He knows those really well. He really knows what he's doing. But in that, what I would call limited container, my patients are a lot more sensitive. So, you know, and I asked him, you don't see people with neuropathy? And I, he said, well, maybe at the highest dose of disulfiram, I see it. And then we might cut it short a little bit. I see it in patients at the lowest dose. You know, I said, what about Herxheimer reactions? He says, yeah, we'll just slow it down and then they're okay. And I'm like, well, I give people microdoses of disulfiram and I see Herxheimer reactions. You know, so, you know, we, we agreed. We have, a, we have a different patient population. So what does that mean? I can tell you, I've had patients on disulfiram do extremely well. And I've had some patients do extremely well on very low doses. And sometimes when we're starting to ramp up the dose, which was part of the original protocol, that they would be doing extremely well. And then we would go one more incremental step and they would crash. And that scared the crap out of me. You know, it's terrible for the patient. It was very upsetting for all of us. And, you know, we'd have to start from scratch. Like, what do we do now? Because of having had that experience quite a few times, what I now do if I'm doing disulfiram is I start at a low dose and I'll slowly increase it. And if someone gets to a point where they're well, they say, you know, I'm feeling really good. Like I'm like almost all better. I won't increase it anymore. We'll just leave it at that dose. I have a patient, one patient who takes an eighth 
an eighth of a 250 milligram tablet. That's a that's 31.25 milligrams. She takes that every three days. If she takes it every two days, she has a herx. But every three days, she's great. She was absolutely great. Although sadly, a week or two ago, we had an appointment after getting a vaccine, her symptoms have come back. That's a whole other story. I have another patient who takes half of that. She's taking about 16 milligrams every three days. She can't do every two days or she'll hurt. But she's doing great on a 16. I mean, that doesn't make any sense from a medical Newtonian perspective, right? But, you know, I see lots of things that don't make any sense from a Western medicine perspective. But, you know, it's real, you know. <laughs> It's, it's amazing and that we just have to respond to what's in front of us, right? So I'm very careful with it, but the bottom line is I'm not taking new patients. So I really don't have the opportunity to start people on disulfiram at this point. I still have patients on disulfiram and doing well, but I am really careful with it. And, um, and you know, as you know, I've written a bunch about it and, and I, you know, stopped using it as much as I had. I will say it seems to work best for Lyme and Babesia. And while it hits Bartonella, I don't think it hits it as well as for Lyme and Babesia. And if someone has Lyme, Babesia and Bartonella, I don't think we're ever gonna get that 100% remission rate or it's unlikely we're gonna get there like we will if they just have two bugs instead of three. As you're aware, the more bugs you have, the more challenging it is to treat these things. So, Doctor, my final question before Rich picks up with you and to conclude this interview is our friend Brianna Wick talked to us recently about, you know, some of the studies you've done and in particular about Bartonella induced ulcerative colitis. Can you talk to us about the study that you're doing and what you're finding there? Uh, this is really interesting. So I'm trying to think of the sequence to present this. I had a kid who uh, his mom brought him to me when he was about 10 years old and he, he had, you know, some mild cardiac symptoms. He had uh, some mild musculoskeletal symptoms. He wasn't real sick, but he tested positive for Lyme. And there was something about him that made me think he also had Bartonella. Anytime we tried to give him something for Bartonella, it would give him a bellyache and sometimes diarrhea. But if we didn't give him anything for Bartonella and we just treated his Lyme, he was fine. And after about six months of amoxicillin, we stopped treatment and he was good. And I said, well, why am I trying to treat Bartonella when he's, the, the kid's fine. Three years later, I get a call from his mom. He's been diagnosed with primary sclerosing cholangitis. This is a big deal. People die from this. So what we're talking about is inflammation of the intra and extra hepatic biliary ducts. So the biliary ducts, basically they gather the bile and they take it down where it can get stored in the gallbladder, but then through the common bile duct, it reaches the intestines where it can help with fat assimilation. And that whole system becomes inflamed and can lead to cirrhosis. And it's, it often leads to cancer. And it's usually associated with inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis. So three years later, he's develops bloody diarrhea and they scope him and they say, oh my God, he's got ulcerative colitis. And then they did some routine studies and they said, well, there's something going on with the liver. And then they ultrasounded him and said, oh my God, he's got primary sclerosing cholangitis. 
Well, it turns out there's some doctors who are giving people antibiotics. So the mother is telling me about this because I'd never seen a case of PSC. And she said, you know, so, you know, there are these doctors here in, that they were going to see in California uh, and they're using vancomycin and they're having a lot of success. Oral vancomycin. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why do they think it works? And she said, they have no idea. Okay. And I said, I think I know why it works. And here's what I'm talking about. Vancomycin, when giving orally, is not absorbed. It doesn't get to the biliary system. It just works in the intestines and goes on out, okay? So why would it affect the biliary system? And I said, here's why it works. Because it's killing the Bartonella in the gut, which was causing the colitis, whereas the primary sclerosing cholangitis was an autoimmune response to the Bartonella in the gut. This goes back to the software issue that Rich was talking about, right? I talked to Martin Fried, who is a pediatric gastroenterologist in New Jersey. He had, he had talked to us at, um, regarding a gastrointestinal Lyme, I'm gonna guess 15 years ago. Uh, it was an ILADS conference, I think in Philadelphia. And, <clears throat> and he published a handful of papers describing scoping kids, because he was a pediatric gastroenterologist, scoping kids with all these different gastrointestinal complaints, including colitis, including, in, including uh, irritable bowel disease, but also in, including Crohn's disease and finding tick-borne infections and then treating the tick-borne infections and they got better. And he was particularly interested in Bartonella. And we know the gut is one of the places Bartonella likes to go in many people. So, Right now, it turns out I'm writing up a report on a young woman. She came to me as a senior in high school with severe Crohn's disease. And as you can imagine, she was put on the usual drugs by her gastroenterologist and she got much worse because that includes corticosteroids, which suppressed her immune system. So while they're only looking at her gut, you know, I'm taking a full history and she's tired and she's achy and she has all these other symptoms. And we actually diagnosed her with Lyme, Babesia, and Bartonella. And we treated all these things. And guess what? Her Crohn's disease went away. And this is really interesting. She didn't think she'd be even be able to go to college. Well, since then, she's graduated college. She's traveled around the world. And then she had somewhat of a relapse. Really interesting, the relapse wasn't with her gastrointestinal symptoms. That never relapsed but the fatigue and the aching and the headaches, all that stuff started coming back. And she came back to see me and we tracked it. When did the relapse start? After she visited her grandparents who lived on the South shore of Boston, they have a moldy house that triggered her relapse. And two years later, it, the same thing happened to her mother visiting her parents someone I had treated for Lyme disease, visited her parents, stayed in the moldy house, symptoms started coming back. So there are all sorts of different insults that can trigger our immune system to go awry. But once we have Lyme and other tick-borne infections, our immune system is primed and now 
all sorts of things can throw us off that would not have thrown us off beforehand. And mold is a great example because I see people living with their whole family in what turns out to be a very moldy house, which is not usually obvious at all. And it's only the person with Lyme disease who's getting sick from it. The others are okay. Now, it's not good for them. They could easily develop allergies and, and mycotoxin illness over time. It's not healthy, but they're not sick. The person with Lyme disease is sick from it. They get away from the house. They're much better. They go back to the house. They're much worse. I have a kid who's, who gets psychotic in the moldy house. Much better when he's away from it. Parents like overnight bought a new house. So it's complicated. And we would love to talk to you all night, but we, we did make a commitment to you that we wouldn't keep you more than 90 minutes. So let me, let me wind down here by asking you one final question. And that is, um, what role do you think your personal journey played in your capacity to serve as um, a more insightful doctor for people that you're treating with Lyme disease? Well, let me think about that. You know, this comes to the other half of the equation when I said Lyme is the worst and the best thing that happened to me. Um, I have a mission in life. It's to help every person who comes to see me feel better. And there's something that I'm very good at and it's detective work. And, and I do my best at asking a lot of questions. I also, by the way, love reading detective novels and watching detective TV shows, you know, my wife doesn't want to see any more murder mysteries, but that's what I'm into. <laughs> and, and, you know, I like, how do we connect these dots? You know, how do we make sense of what's happening here? And even though it's in different realms, like one realm may be the physical, but another realm might have to be the trauma that happened in childhood. And how are those connected? And, you know, and there's lots of dots to connect there. And I like working with that and trying to figure it out. And, but the bottom line is uh, people get better. Really, most of my patients get better. When I say that, you know, I actually heard Horowitz use the same numbers I use. You know, 80, 90% people get 80 to 100% better. And these are mostly people who've been sick for years, if not decades. And it takes time, it really does. Um, just, I just can't imagine anything more gratifying, anything more re rewarding in people getting better. It makes my day, right? You, you know, um, it's interesting. I'm reading a story about Leonard Cohen now. He went, it turns out he went to Israel during the Yom Kippur War. And they're talking about this whole shtick that he did. This is in his 30s when he, he sort of ranted about the Jewish religion. And he's talking about, he's very Jewish, but that gives us permission to rant about it, right? And he, he's talking about, we need, we need prophets. We should be connecting vertically, not horizontally. I'm a horizontalist. You know, I get gratification of connecting with my patients and helping them and doing my best. So, and, and that goes back, I think, to the very beginning of our conversation, which is the little five-year-old boy who is, who is uh, being asked the question about whether or not he wanted to be a rabbi at, um, at, his, at his Seder. 
And he said, no, I wanted to be a doctor who was, who was well-versed in the Torah, a good person who was going to heal people. So I think that's a perfect way of ending our, our beautiful conversation. We can't thank you enough for spending time with us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you folks. And it's been a real blessing for us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Daniel Kinderleher. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Daniel, please visit his website at recoveryfromlyme.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp is created to take by Blueprint. That has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We're ready to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the Blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.